you may notice right now that things look a little bit different, and that is on purpose. Earlier this week, Pastor Josh, who's part of our staff and was scheduled to preach today, got some difficult news that his mom, who had been struggling for some time with some ongoing health issues, had passed away. And so this week, our staff has considered it a privilege to come alongside Josh to support him and care for him. For a number of weeks, I have been planning to, this weekend on Sunday, January 14th, be in Las Vegas, where my dad is celebrating his final Sunday as the pastor of a church there where he's been serving for over 41 years. So with Josh facing the circumstances he's facing and me having the commitment I was having, we had a quandary. And so we decided to, instead of kind of figuring something different out, I moved the message that was supposed to be week three in this series to week two, and we're pre-recording this message to share it with you today. So I know it may look different, but last weekend, many of you watched me on a screen from home in the middle of a snowstorm. And so I hope you'll give me some grace today as I share this message with you. This is personal, it's meaningful, and I hope through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's powerful. Thanks for being here today. Meet Billy. In five years, Billy will have spent 605 days sleeping and two and a half full days brushing his teeth, hopefully. He will have sat in traffic for nine full days. Billy hates traffic. And in five years, he will have spent 433 days working. Social media will have taken up 152 consecutive days of his life. He will have walked 3,650 miles and spoken 29.2 million words, hopefully good ones. In five years, Billy will have spent 76 days eating and drinking. Billy loves dessert. Two and a half years out of the five will be spent consuming media, with 228 days spent watching TV. Billy is messy. He will have spent 152 days cleaning. And in five years, he will have spent roughly $40,000 on food, 40 days shopping, and 50 days socializing with the homies. Welcome to you in five years. I was born in the 20th century, and it was a different time before our phones would give us turn-by-turn directions, and we never needed to pull our eyes off of the road before we could reach anyone, anywhere through a constant mobile connection. Uh, We didn't make epic plans the way that we used to. And so in the early 2000s, when I was in college, I had moved to Arizona to attend Grand Canyon University, and my friends and I decided that one holiday weekend, it was actually this holiday weekend in particular, MLK Day, that we were going to drive up and visit the Grand Canyon. Several of us had never been there before, and we were going to check it out. And so we began to make plans to travel from right here, brought a map for you, from central Phoenix, where Grand Canyon University is, all the way up to the Grand Canyon. So we got prepared to go. We didn't print off directions from MapQuest. My buddy Nick said, hey, it's all good. I've been there before. Just stick with me, Scott. You'll be fine. And so we were going to ride up together, except at the last minute, Nick said, hey, I decided I'm going to drive our friend's Mercedes. And he threw me the keys to his Nissan Maxima. And he said, Scott, I want you to drive my car. 
I said, okay, well, I wasn't planning on driving, but I guess I can stick with you. He's like, yeah, just stick with me. You're good. And I said, okay, but I don't really know where I'm going, so don't leave me behind. Well, Nick pretty quickly decided that it was fun to drive a Mercedes, and he was going to push it as fast as he could. And so Nick began to take off, and I was faced with a moral quandary as we left the Phoenix area. Was I going to massively violate the speed limit? Or was I going to get completely lost along with the people in my car? And so I made the decision that I was going to begin to drive as fast as I could because as I'm weighing this, he has left me behind and now I am frantically trying to catch up. And so over the next period of time, we exceeded 80 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, and 100 miles an hour. We ended up peaking at 120 miles an hour, and most of the trip, we were over 100 miles an hour. This typical path from central Phoenix to the Grand Canyon, it can take anywhere from three and a half to four hours. But that day, we got there in about two and a half. And and though I was really excited that uh, I hadn't gotten lost, I had spent hours terrified that my life was going to be over because some cop was going to pull me over, I was going to go to jail, have to call my parents, and everything was going to be, po- be toast. And so at the end of the day, miraculously, we, we didn't get pulled over, uh, we didn't get in an accident, no one got a ticket, and we lived to tell the story later. But I will tell you that, that I have never been more scared of getting in trouble in my entire life. You know, I was thinking about that story, not only because it happened this particular weekend many years ago, but also because it reminded me of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what does it mean for us to follow Jesus in the midst of this world that we've been allowed to live in. And, and what I've discovered, and I think you've probably discovered this too, is that following Jesus for, for me and, and maybe for you is often like that trip except for one thing. Jesus doesn't speed. If you're going to be like my friend Nick and take off and go at your own speed and rush and hurry, what you're going to find is that you are going to leave Jesus behind. And many times when I've thought that I was following Jesus, I've turned around and realized that I left him behind a long, long time ago. And over time, I begin to feel the results of that. I deeply resonate with the words of John Mark Comer, who says this. He says, if you're tired, if you're burnt out, if chronic anxiety is your new normal, if you always have to be doing something, then the odds are it is a sign from God in your own body that you have gone past your limitations and therefore past the grace of God in the capacity of your life. If you feel the words of that quote in your bones and in your body today, then I'm so glad that you have tuned into this message. Because today we are in week two of a series that we are calling you in five years. If God allows us, each of us in five years will be five years older than we are today. And the choices that we're making today 
are making us the person that we're going to be in five years. And last week, we, we unveiled some kind of foundational ideas for this series that I want to recap for you because you've probably lived some life between now and then, and some of you missed that week. Here's the foundational principle that this series is built upon. We tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, and we tend to underestimate what God can do in five years. We, we think we can accomplish more than we can in one year, and so we get overly ambitious, but we're not nearly intentional enough when it comes to what God can do to transform us and who we're becoming in five years. And we talked last week about this idea of that there is a present us today and there is a future us in five years. And what we said last week drawing on the wisdom of Levi Lesko, who was the kind of originator behind this series title, we said this, if nothing changes, future you will be an exaggerated version of present you. That if we don't embrace God's grace and make the changes we have it in our own power to make, then who we are today is just going to exaggerate over time. And you in five years, me in five years, will just become an exaggerated version of who we are today. And as we said last week, in some areas of our lives, that's a blessing. And in some areas of life, that's probably a curse. And so we asked you to do two things coming out of last week's message. We said, first, imagine an exaggerated version of present you in five years. Write down five things you like about future you. And five things that you don't like. And so if you haven't done that yet, maybe that's where you begin when this message is done. Secondly, we we asked you to spend time this week asking God to reveal what he wants you to do with what you imagined and wrote down. And so I hope if you were here last week, you've come today really ready to begin work over these next four weeks, thinking about what does it mean for you to be a future you And how can the choices and actions and habits and the identity you root yourself in today and present you influence that? And so over the next four Sundays, we're going to talk about some areas that I think were headed in the wrong direction that we need to soberly look at and then begin to shift into a new direction. And we'll begin here. A lot of us, when we run into people, and maybe you've seen people over the last week who you hadn't seen before the holidays... Often when people ask us, hey, how are you doing? We use a word to describe how we're doing, and many of us wear it as a badge of honor. We say, I'm busy. Many of us use this word to describe us, hey, I'm busy, there's a lot going on. Some of us wear it as a badge of honor, like we're, we're super grateful to be busy. But others of us, it, it becomes this, this chronic habit and way of life. I love what Dallas Willard says about this word busy. He says, being busy is a state of your schedule, but being hurried is a state of your soul. There are times in your life and times in my life where we can't control or completely eliminate 
the busyness. If you're a student, you're probably going to be busy around midterms and finals. If you're a young parent, you're going to be busy as your kids begin to kind of move and they no longer stay where you put them and they begin to talk to you. If you're a parent of teenagers, you may be busy because of the schedules of your kids and driving them from one event to another. You may be busy because of the season of your work. You may be busy because you're taking care of elderly parents. But busy is a schedule issue. According to Willard, being hurried is a soul issue. And you may have discovered, like I have, that when you've shifted from busyness to hurry, what happens is even though your schedule is no longer full, you continue to rush, you continue to hurry, and you continue to live at a frenetic and frantic pace. And so today, what we're going to talk about is this issue of hurry. And it looks a lot different in each of us, each of our lives. It looks different in different times and seasons. For me, hurry has looked like a number of things. For me, hurry often looks like impatience, which often shows up in how I drive or how I wait in line. It shows up as anxiety and fear, that, that sense of worry. It shows up with, with a loudness that when, when I'm hurried, I always have something playing. There's always noise. I'm always listening to something, watching something. Hurry is often an overstuffed calendar. And hurry is often an avoidance of quiet. If any of these things have described how you've been living lately, I'm so glad that you're here today because I think I can help. If you're taking notes today, here's the big idea that we're going to spend time unpacking. It's hard to follow Jesus when you're in a hurry. It's hard to follow Jesus when you're in a hurry. So if you don't intend to follow Jesus, if you're not trying to become a person who looks like Jesus, this may be less of a relevant message to you. But even if you're not, I think you were made with a hunger and desire to live like Jesus because over time, I think all of us get weary of the results that come from living a hurried life. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, he gave us this model of unhurried living. And one of the places we see that is in the book of Mark chapter 5. So if you have your Bible today, I want to encourage you to grab it and open it up. Mark is one of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're near the back of your Bible. They begin the section of your Bible called the New Testament. Mark is the shortest of the four. He's action-packed. He tries to give us a, a kind of a distilled blow-by-blow blow of what happened. And there's this incredible moment that happens in Mark chapter 5. And so I know that I'm not preaching live in the room on Sunday morning to you. I'm not right there with you, but I want us to do this together. So I'm going to invite you, if you've found Mark, or even if you haven't, to stand as we honor God's word. And I'm going to read this passage. I will give you a bit of a heads up. It is a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth it. Here's how the passage begins in Mark 5, 21. Jesus is the one who's being recorded here says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her 
so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against Jesus. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. But having heard about Jesus, she came up behind the crowd, behind him in the crowd, and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that the power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing in. How can you ask who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. So the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. But the story doesn't stop there. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader named Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, who was James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people wailing, weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him and he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, that's Peter, James, and John, And he entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Jesus, I pray that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you're trying to say to us. And help us to be receptive and help us to take action in light of what you're doing in our midst today. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now I think you can see, now that we've spent time with that text, why this is our big idea. Because Jesus lived in such a radical way that we often find it hard to follow. I don't know about you, but I find myself on a regular basis consistently in a hurry. I find myself driving fast even though I don't have an appointment to get to. I'll find myself eating quickly even though I have nowhere else I have to be. I find myself racing even though it's a weekend day. And what I've found as I've been reading through this passage for the last couple weeks and, and meditating on these words and reflecting on my own life is I have found that we are consistently in a hurry while Jesus was never in a hurry. 
In 2023, I had the privilege of reading through the Bible four or five times, not the whole Bible, that's a mistake, I read through the Gospels. And as I read through the Gospels four or five times in 2023, what I found again and again in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was Jesus was never in a hurry. And that's surprising to me because if I was in Jesus' shoes and I had the most important work in the world, I had the most significant mission that could be conceived, I would hurry. I'd have so much to accomplish. It'd be so important. I would just have to get after it and go, 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 go. And yet, Jesus was never in a hurry. Even as he was headed to heal someone who was dying, he wasn't in such a hurry that he ignored the people that he was around in that moment. And what's fascinating, if, if you look there in Matthew 5, is Jesus is going to heal someone. And in the midst of that, someone is right next to him that needs healing. And that woman interrupts him. She reaches out and grabs him. And not only did he feel somebody grab him, but he felt power go out of him. And the purpose or the mission that he was on there, heading to heal Jairus' daughter, gets interrupted. And if I was Jesus, and let's be really clear, I'm not. But if I was Jesus and I got interrupted like that, I would probably be annoyed. Don't you understand? I'm going to heal someone. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't get annoyed. He shows that woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, tender, kindness, care, compassion, and love. And again, there's a big difference between us and, and Jesus because all too often we view interruptions as annoyances while Jesus embraced people interrupting him. Jesus was interrupted and he didn't get frustrated. He looked to connect. All too often, if I'm caught up in one of those days where I have a lot to do, the to-do list is long, my agenda is fixed, if somebody needs something, whether that's one of my kids who's sick at school or somebody who shows up truthfully, I, I sometimes get annoyed. Don't they understand? I have important things to do. But here's what Jesus knew and we need to understand. People aren't interruptions. People are the point. I got into this work as a pastor because I love and care about people and I wanted to help people take their next step with Jesus. But there are times where I lose sight of that and I begin to think that the point is being productive, getting through everything on my to-do list, feeling ahead with my tasks and my projects. And I need a text like Mark 5 to shake me and wake me up and say, Scott, you're going in the wrong direction. If you were here last week for week one, we spent a lot of time really unpacking this idea of you in five years. And I, I hoped in that message to stir you that you would go home and think about this idea that if God gives you five years of life, the choices you're making today, the direction you're heading in today, all of that is making you who you will be in five years. What you do as present you shapes who you will be as future you. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 6, where he talks about reaping and sowing. Here's what I want to remind you of today. The pace that we are sowing today will be the life we are reaping in five years. 
The pace we're, we're sowing today will be the life that we're reaping in five years. And so this is where it gets personal for me. In five years, instead of having kids in elementary and middle school, I'm going to have kids in middle school and high school. Instead of having a 15-year anniversary with my wife like I did last year, I'll be coming off a 20-year anniversary. And with those people who are incredibly important to me, if the pace that I'm sowing today is one of hurry and rush and busyness and distraction, then my fear is in five years, the life I will be reaping is the people in my life feeling like they're not as important to me as my tasks and my projects, my calendar and my agenda. I don't want to wake up one day in five years and have the people who I care most about be wondering if they are the most important thing to me. And one of the ways I can communicate that to them is not whether or not I'm busy because I'm not always in control of that. What I can control is the state of my soul and if I'm living in a hurried way. And so I just want to ask you a question before we go any further. Why are you in such a hurry? Why are you rushing and speeding along so much? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of of silence? Are you afraid that if you stopped, you'd have to face what you've been running from? Are, Are you being driven by a sense of anxiety or insecurity? Are you trying to prove something to someone? Are you feeling a sense of emptiness and loneliness and so you're running from that with a hurried pace? In the time that we have left today, I want to share with you four things to consider about your pace because the pace that you're sowing today is the life you're going to be reaping in five years. And I want you in five years to look more like Jesus. So here's the first thing I want you to consider. Number one, I want you to start considering how you're paying attention. I want you to start considering how you're paying attention. We often use that phrase, pay attention. But, but it means more than I think we realize. Several years ago, I got to know a great guy named Paul Angoni. Paul is an author and a speaker who often works with corporations about understanding generational issues. And he's got a beautiful family. They're so beautiful that they actually spend a lot of time acting and modeling in in marketing campaigns for companies around the country. And, And Paul tells the story that one day his son realized that he as a dad was distracted by his phone. And so his son said to him, dad, pay attention. And later in the day, Paul began to realize that 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 phrase, pay attention, had deeper meaning than he once thought. He realized that his attention was a limited resource. And the same way that he had a limited amount of money, he had a limited amount of attention. And he was paying a price by giving his attention to things that mattered less. And he was ignoring people and ignoring things with his attention that mattered more. What what Paul realized is that what we give our attention to demands a cost. That when you're giving your attention to something, it means you can't give your attention to someone else. I know a lot of us think we can multitask in this world, but I would encourage you, if you're spending time with your loved ones, 
and you're multitasking, I promise you, they can feel the lack of attention you're giving them. And I love the famous quote. I've forgotten who the author is, but the famous quote that love is spelled A-T-T-E-N-T-I-O-N. That's how we show people we love them, by how we give them our attention. And in our world, our attention has never been more under siege and it has never been more profited from. Again, I love what John Mark Comer says here. He says, your phone doesn't actually work for you. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-billion dollar corporation in California, not for you. He says, you're not the customer, you're the product. And it's your attention that's for sale along with your peace of mind. If you use a service on your phone, like a social media app or something else, and it's free, the reason why it's free is your attention is being sold to someone else. And so what I want you to do, this is one of our next steps this week. I want you to start considering where your attention is going, how you're paying attention and what it's costing you. Okay. Number two, I want you to begin experiencing with the three S's, silence, solitude, and Sabbath. These are things that Jesus practiced. And though we don't see them in Mark 5, 21 to 42, we see the impact of them. Because Jesus was constantly embracing silence. His disciples would find him in solitude on a mountain overnight or early in the morning praying. He and his disciples weekly practiced the Sabbath, a 24-hour period where they would stop and rest. And these disciplines, these practices and habits that have marked followers of Jesus for 2,000 years are things we need to embrace because our world is pushing us to a place that's unsustainable. And in a world of noise and loneliness and hustle, the way of Jesus is rebellious. In a world that says, hey, you have to go fast, stopping is rebellion. In a world that constantly wants to fill your life with noise, embracing silence is rebellious. And in a world that's constantly looking to make us more and more isolated, embracing solitude and engaging then community with something to offer is a countercultural revolution. I mentioned at the top of this video that part of the reason that I'm sharing today in this way is this is my way of supporting my brother and my teammate, Pastor Josh, whose mom passed away this week. And as I was preparing this message, Josh was on my heart and my mind, and I was praying for him, and I stumbled on a great quote from Josh. So this is my way of letting Josh know that I'm thinking about him, praying for him, and that we love him. I'm quoting him in my sermon. Here's what Josh once said. He said, speaking about an experience he had in his own life, there were things about God that we can only discover in slowness and stillness. That is so true. When I have finally allowed myself and carved out time and committed to stop, allow quiet to descend and be still, I've experienced God's presence in remarkable ways. And I don't know about you, but I want to experience all of who God is. I don't want to miss out on any 
thing that God has for me. And if I'm going to do that, according to the wisdom of Pastor Josh, that's going to mean that I'm going to have to embrace silence. I'm going to have to embrace slowness. I'm going to have to embrace stillness. And one of the ways that followers of Jesus have done this for, again, thousands of years is through practicing Sabbath. The word Sabbath in Hebrew is the word Shabbat. And the word Shabbat can be translated in a couple different ways. It can be translated to stop. It can also be translated to delight. And a lot of us are aware of Sabbath and that you don't do anything or you stop. But, but Sabbath is also a delighting. It's an enjoying. It's, it's not meant to be something that's incredibly spartan and painful. It's in meant to be something that's enriching and good. And, and one of the ways that we experience the opposite of this is in how we eat. A lot of us eat really fast and we miss out on the goodness of what we're eating. And I want you to think about what it would look like if you went and you paid $100 for a steak. I've got a friend that he, he just loves tomahawk steaks. Most of the time, a tomahawk steak is over $100. Well, I'm sorry, if you're going to pay $100 for a piece of meat, you are not going to scarf that down. What are you going to do? You're going to cut it slowly. You're going to put it in your mouth. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to savor the flavors. You're going to enjoy every ounce and morsel of that expensive piece of meat. If that's how we treat a steak, how much more should that be how we engage the goodness of God? And so I wonder, how can you stop and savor God's goodness? How can you embrace all that God has for you and not blow past it? So I'd encourage you to begin experimenting with silence, with solitude and Sabbath. And at the end of the message, I'm going to share some resources where you can learn more about those practices and habits. Here's the third thing I want you to consider today. I want you to begin to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I want you to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You're like, Scott, that's really aggressive language. I know. But it's intentionally chosen and it's important. In our world today, there are a lot of us that have discovered that we have allergies that shape how we consume and how we engage with this world. Some of you have discovered that you're allergic to dogs or cats, and so you don't go visit friends or family who have those animals. Others of you have discovered that you have a peanut allergy, and so you always check the ingredients on everything you buy to make sure that it hasn't come in contact with peanuts. Personally, I can't drink milk, and so I'm always checking to make sure that there's not dairy when I go to a restaurant. I ask for what's ingredients in a particular menu item. Perhaps you have a gluten allergy and so you avoid and, and ruthlessly look to make sure that you don't consume that. Well, here's, here's the thought I have. If you ruthlessly eliminate what your body is allergic to, why wouldn't you ruthlessly eliminate the thing that does violence to your soul? Like, think about it. If you ruthlessly eliminate from your diet the things that do violence to your body, why would you not ruthlessly eliminate the things that do violence to your soul? Remember what Willard said at the beginning of this message, being busy is a state of our schedule, but being hurried is a state of our soul. That's why we have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry because it does untold damage to our souls. 
There's a famous story that illustrates this and it speaks to why the place that we're born in the world and our values in this corner of the world often work against the way of Jesus, make it hard for us to follow Jesus. There's a famous story about a group of Europeans that went to visit the continent of Africa. When they arrived, they hired some locals to be porters for them and help carry their bags to their destination. And over the first couple of days, the Europeans were very frustrated at the pace of the Africans. It was far too slow for their modern sentiment. They wanted to go faster, 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 faster. They rolled their eyes. They were frustrated at the pace. And so eventually, on the third day, after rolling their eyes, they said, hey, Let's pick it up. And they drove the locals to go incredibly fast. At the end of the third day, they were so excited. Finally, we're making progress. We're making hay. We're going for it. But at the morning of the fourth day, they noticed that the porters were not getting up quickly and preparing to leave. It seemed like they were prepared to stay there. And when the Europeans asked the Africans about this, they said, we cannot go any further today. Europeans were shocked. That's not the bargain we agreed to. What do you mean? Here's what the Africans said. They said, we went so quickly yesterday that we must wait here for our souls to catch up with us. They got it. That the pace that we live doesn't just affect our souls. It also affects our bodies. It doesn't just affect our bodies. It also affects our souls. And so I would encourage you that if hurry does violence to our souls, we need to ruthlessly eliminate it from our lives. If you need help with that, there's an incredible book by the title of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by John Mark Comer. We've shared some of his wisdom in this message. Our staff read through this book a couple of years ago. We found it profoundly helpful and it's listed along with some resources and I'll share those with you in just a moment. But here's the last thing I want, to, I want you to consider today. Number four. I want to encourage you to build margin into your life. I want to encourage you to build margin into your life. This week, we had a snowstorm, and I got to practice a little bit of what I've been preaching. I had a day very full that day. I'd overbooked my day, and here's what happened. A snowstorm. It threw off my schedule. It changed my plans, and I realized that I had not built margin into my day. It was a reminder for me that my schedule isn't God. My schedule isn't all knowing. My schedule isn't all powerful. My schedule is not sovereignly in control of all circumstances. Things are always happening that we don't plan for or expect. And we need margin. You say, Scott, what is margin? Margin is this margin is the space between our load and our limits. It is related to our reserves and our resilience. And for those of you who are Parks and Rec fans, that's Richard Swanson, not Ron Swanson. Big difference. But, but all of us have a capacity, like our limits, and we have a load that we're carrying. And hopefully, we have some margin between the two. But truthfully, and let's be honest, a lot of us live where our load and our limits are right next to each other. We've got no space there, no margin. So as a result, we have no reserves and we struggle with resilience. Stuff's going to happen to you this week, this month, this year that you didn't plan for or expect. I promise you. And so you need a space between what you're trying to carry and your limits. Between what you're trying to do and your limits. 
And it's in that space that you plan for and you prepare for the unexpected. Jesus had margin, not just in his schedule, but in his soul. So that in Mark 5, when a woman reached out to him and touched him, he wasn't annoyed. He wasn't aggravated. He turned and he said, who touched me? Daughter, your faith has made you well. And if you aspire in five years or this year to be more like Jesus, if you're looking to follow him, friend, it's hard to follow Jesus when you're in a hurry. If you could use some help with those four considerations that I've shared with you today, then I want to encourage you when this message is over to check out prescottcornerstone.com slash resources. It's the resource page on our website. There's a big green button there that says resources mentioned in the sermon. And I've put a number of things that I hope help you take action this week. As we continue in this series, my prayer is that each of us are becoming not only more and more in five years who we want to be, but in the next five years, you and I become more and more of who God created us to be and that we look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this message today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We pray that in the places where we have been challenged, encouraged, stirred or convicted that we would submit to what your word is doing in our hearts. Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart today were pleasing to you and that what you did through my humble attempt to communicate your word has reached people. And I pray that we wouldn't be distracted from what you're doing in this moment. We wouldn't delay obedience but we would take action where you're inspiring us and that day by day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, we would be coming more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for your promise from, a flip, from Philippians 1.6 that says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We pray, Jesus, that you would finish what you've started in us. In your name we pray, amen.